a good leader certainly understands what leaders need to do. Um, and that's not having functional skills in coding or selling or product development. Leadership is about, first of all, deciding where are we going, what is our mission, and what are the values that define how we do our work together or work with individual customers, um, vendors, suppliers, and so on. So the direction, setting the direction, that's the first thing. And that's the leader's responsibility. If you don't do that, everybody's wandering around in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. you got to do it. Secondly, you have to communicate it. So a whole issue around communication. and Not only where are we going, but how far have we come? How are we coming? What do I want you to do? And communicating to people in ways that enable them to understand and get better and then begin to make those decisions themselves. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers, and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Dr. Jana Matthews, Director and Professor at the Australian Centre for Business Growth at the University of South Australia. Since launching in 2014, the centre has worked with more than 400 Australian companies to help accelerate their growth and improve performance with impressive results. Our story today starts back at a young Yana growing up in small town USA, loving reading and curious about the much, much wider world, then going on to study at the University of London and Yale University and completing her doctorate at Harvard. Yana has written eight books, published in 17 languages. In 2018, Forbes listed her book, Leading at the Speed of Growth, at the top of the CEO reading list for technology entrepreneurs. In Australia, 2018, Yana was listed in the Australian Financial Review as one of 100 women of influence. Having served on seven boards and five companies of her own, Yana has much wisdom to share. Thank you for tuning in to Real People. If this is your first episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to at least some of the previous 27 episodes. We've had people from advertising to the arts to academics. We've had uh, people talking about innovation to artificial intelligence. We've had people talking about research and consumer insights and data, had quite long-flowing discussions. Intention is to have a journey-like discussion from where it all began to predictions and suggestions moving forward. Some really great interviews and it's been quite pleasing to see the audience grow and see the audience from Australia and beyond. So we're about 50% of listeners from Australia and 50% beyond Australia, 25% from the US, and we've got Europe and India and across Asia, Europe. Uh, Some of our guests have included uh, Finland, Andre Noel, Shakur, uh, 
and many others from different parts of, of the world, UK, US, and obviously Australia. So please listen. We're quite proud of the shows and we're, we're ever learning and, and evolving. If you have been a listener for some time, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's nice to, to know that uh, we've been able to strike a chord with some people out there. So that's great. Please, please let us know any comments or thoughts or if you'd like to get in touch, either via Square Holes or my own social media. Twitter's probably best, but other social media, you can find me at Jason Dunstone. We have had a bit of a break over Christmas and over Christmas has become now we're in May. So a bit of thinking, a bit of time, a bit of losing the rhythm. Uh, Square Holes has been very busy, which is great, uh, which is always nice, but sometimes I think it comes back to... Uh, probably easier to delay it and and, um, lose that rhythm once you stop for a few weeks. So here we go. So we've got two other episodes other than today's ready to go. So we're really excited about getting the momentum back up again and learning and evolving. We've got some other ideas in terms of publishing, podcasting coming up during 2019. So please stay tuned and, and let us know what you think. Today's show is a most fascinating journey of Yana's and thanks Yana for your time and openness in the discussion. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thank you so much for for joining us today, uh, Yana. Uh, I'm going to start off like I do with all of these interviews, which is like a real sort of flashback in the, in, into the past. What were you like when you were a, a young girl? Around about, let's say, around about eight, eight, ten. What were you like? What can you remember? Well, if I remember the report card, it was Jana talks too much. <laughs> I was into everything. I was curious about everything. I had to remark about everything. And my mother said all the things that made me so difficult as a child are probably the things that have led to success as an adult. Mm. Um, I noticed as I've gotten older, I've become less extroverted and much more introverted, um, more into thoughts, more into writing, more into enjoying time alone. But yes, as a young girl, I was quite active. I was an only child, grew up in a small town, no brothers and sisters. Um, My father was determined I was going to be a concert pianist. So I studied piano a lot. um, And Spent the summers at the local library reading. Um, had to mow the grass and um, trim the hedges. And for every place I missed, I had to pay my dad a quarter. So when you only get paid a dollar and you miss four of them, you don't make much money. <laughs> you had KPIs back then, didn't you? <laughs> my, my dad would take me along in the car. Uh, I would ride to his customers. We'd be talking about um, customers and and the value that you provide, and, and honesty, and transparency, and he'd go in and take inventory and tell them what they needed. It was kind of a magical situation when I think about growing up in a small town in the Midwest. Yeah, Where, whereabouts in the Midwest? Well, Union City until I got to my senior year in high school, and then that had 2,500 people on a Saturday night, yeah. and then we moved to Richmond, 35,000 people, and uh, a high school of 428, I think it was in the senior class. What was it like living in a small town? 
It was very small. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Does that mean it's friendly or everybody knows? Everybody knows everything about everybody's business. People would call and tell my mother that I was walking slowly in the rain. And why wouldn't <laughs> I run through the rain? I walked 15 minutes to school and then back at lunch and back to school and back in the evening. So I got an hour's walk every day. Um, I had a dog and uh, we lived in a small house. My mother had been, my mother, real mother died when I was six. And my dad was desperate to find me a mother and, and convinced the friend of a high school buddy who, or the sister of a high school friend who had never married to marry him and moved to a small town and bring up this little girl. Talk about a sacrifice. Wow. Yeah, I'll wow. be forever grateful. But what she did was to bring a very different perspective than most of the women in town. And she'd been the daughter of a judge. So our locus of um, attention was in Dayton, Ohio, not Union City, Indiana. And she said to me from a very early age, getting married and having children is a wonderful thing, but it's not the only thing a woman can do. Yeah, okay, wow. So I didn't think until, of course, I've been much older about those messages that are sent to you as a young girl, you know, riding along with my father, going and visiting the business customers that he had, and then my mother talking about, you know, she, she certainly demonstrated, learned new skills like canning and cooking and being a mother when she was in her early 40s, because my dad was in mm-hmm. his 40s when he got married the first time. But um, I think I grew up with a very different childhood than you would expect from a child in the Midwest. But didn't feel like you were constrained in terms of what? the future might be and what you could be. Is that, is I, that right? I couldn't imagine what the future would be. Yeah, okay. I didn't have role models around me. I, I looked and what happened were girls would go off to the state teachers college for a couple of years and get married and then have kids. So everybody was there, stayed there. If they went away, it was only a couple of years and came back. And, and I'd, as somebody said to me at a clinic in Darwin, I, I actually never peered over the wall to see what the whole world looked like. I just knew there was more. Mm-hmm. I, I, would, I just wanted so much to get out of that town and explore the world. And is that where the curiosity you mentioned right at the start came from? That you, were just, you said you were curious about everything. I don't know. Is that just who you, you were just an active, I think I was an active, curious mind. child, yeah. and, there, and all the reading that I did maybe yeah. made me be more yeah. eager to leave. Was reading part of that curiosity? Mm, yeah. Very much, yeah. So I would a couple guests that basically spend the summer yeah. in the library. Yeah. There wasn't anything else to do. Reading what sort of things? So. Oh, Nancy Drew, murder mysteries, detective mysteries. Um, I wasn't big on history. I was very big on um, English literary criticism. So I'm, was the first, first major was English literary criticism. So I was, uh, you know, Shakespeare and, and poets and... So I've always loved, I've loved words and I've loved literature always. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And were you academic as a child? You talked about being curious and extroverted and maybe become more introverted as you've um, matured. Were you academic? Was that like a, a, a desire to learn or were you good at school? And mm. Oh, I, I guess I was very smart. I, yeah. Nobody really <laughs> talked about those things. Yeah. Um, I do know that the fifth grade teacher called my dad and said if I didn't learn my mathematic my multiplication tables, I was probably going to fail math. So I had to stop reading quite so much and s- switch over uh, to math. Okay, yeah. But yes, I read a lot. And 
Later, when I went back to a high school reunion and saw my English teacher, she said, um, I always knew you were different. Is that right? Uh-huh. I, I don't no, know. You can't say the time. Nor- can normally, really? you don't want to be different. You want to be like everybody else. Yeah. Is that, is that as, as a young girl, you, is that almost like you're putting that tension, aren't you, really? Yes. About you want to be the same as everybody else, yes. but you also want to be different. <laughs> yeah, my father would say, I'd say, Daddy, everybody goes to the sweet shop after school. Why do I have to come home and practice the piano? And he'd said, uh, uh, you're my daughter and you're different. And so it was sort of okay from an early age. You know, women don't have to only have children and get married. You can be different. Um, so I, I guess I learned at an early age must have had in my subconscious that it's okay to be different. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So a strong academic um, background now. So you're at Yale and Harvard and London University. Was that was that planned? Was that did you want to go out there and study, or was it more about the world travel? Like where did so transferred to the high school had never taken the SATs or whatever the college prep exams were. So the dean of women at this high school, 450 in the graduating class, called up a local university and said, she's not taking any exams, but she should go to university. And so he said, all right. And I had no money. My father you know, was a small business owner. We didn't have any money. Um, so they gave me a scholarship. So wow. I started in this local university, and one, it was a, it was a very good private little private university. And one of the things they did was to actually send people off junior abroad, various London, Paris, wherever. And I really, really wanted to go to London. And my dad did not want me to go to London. He was rather authoritarian and pre- protective, probably. Mm-hmm. But I wanted very much. But I had sort of gotten involved with this lovely, wonderful fellow, very bright physicist. And uh, he, he was worried that that was going too far too fast. So he did agree to my going to London as a way of separating that relationship, right? So then I came home. By this time, the physicist... So you studied at the University of London? Yes, from, yes. Yeah, okay. Junior abroad there. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. And then came back and then applied to graduate school at Yale. And then uh, spent a year there, got married yeah. to Sam Matthews. And then later went back uh, to Harvard and yeah. then got my doctorate there. What did, what did you study at uni? When you, your first, well, the when first you uni London, was yeah. was university. Uh, I'm sorry, English literary criticism. Yeah, okay. So we studied all the great, you know, Shakespeare and Pope and um, uh, Gulliver's Travels and all the other great uh, writers. Yeah. And uh, I remember saying to the professor, "I don't know what else I can say. Everything has been said about Pope." And he said, "Well, just remember, he put his pants on one leg at a time." <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what that meant. <laughs> and then Yale was, what did you study? Yale was graduate school there. It was a combination of English and, and divinity school. Yeah. Because I worked my way through uni, um, Earlham College, which was the equivalent of a university, um, uh, by being director of Christian ed at, at the local Presbyterian church. Yeah, wow. Okay. So I thought, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe I could do something in, in the relig- religion, but... Mm. Yes. And your doctorate at Harvard. Yeah, management where, where and planning. Did, did that? Was that? Yeah. Was that? Was it? That was. Did you have a gap? Or quite a you, quite a gap in yeah. between there. I also have a master's in psych, social anthropology, and sociology, yeah. um, English uh, education. So clearly, a, like your your life has been one of 
curiosity and learning and yes and and most of the time if i decided i wanted to go like when i decided i wanted to go to harvard i said this is my year and i have to step back and try to understand what i've just experienced i'd done three years at arthur d little technology consulting probably worked 40 hours between friday night and monday morning you know it was very very intense a lot of international travel it was just amazing how much I had learned, and I just needed to step back and sort of consolidate that learning. And I was had just gotten uh, engaged to Chuck Halbauer, and um, I decided this was this was my couple of years to be able to step out and and think. And uh, so I approached the folks at Harvard, and I said, "Well, we're just sending out the acceptances today." And I said, "But I have to go. This is my year." So I had to figure out a way to make it work. So I got admitted to a special program in administration planning and social policy, and took courses at the Sloan School of MIT, Sloan School of Management at MIT, the Harvard Business School, the Kennedy School of Public Policy, and then the School of Education. Yeah, wow, okay. So So I've always been a broad-gauged, very much of a broad-gauged thinker. And people say, where did you get your economics? Well, I don't know, I just picked it up. So where did that come, obviously, your your, um, specialist area now is entrepreneurship and, and growth. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Right. So then I, I went to the National Center for Higher Education Management Systems. And there we were helping universities understand how to be better managed and using information technology and systems. And, and being better managed also meant being more responsive to the customers. In some cases, these customers were large corporations that wanted universities to offer an engineering degree to my employees. Mm. Um, And in New York, we did the um, feasibility uh, study that resulted in the, what became the Watson School of Engineering at the University of of Binghamton. And that started a whole different train of thought, which was how do universities as organizations become sensitive and responsive to the economic needs of the community. In this case, they said, we need engineering programs at the upper division and graduate level, so our engineers who come here to the regions will stay. Otherwise, they're going to lose their edge, their technology edge. And there had been a pact in New York about the private universities and had, had the engineering, the public universities had something else. So we had to basically go to the legislature and do a lot of stuff in order mm-hmm. to get people to approve uh, these engineering degrees. And that led to a whole string of other projects around the U.S. and actually led me coming here to do what became the marketing and feasibility study for the Australian Technology Park. And that was my first trip here yeah. in Australia. So that's where I began to look at what is it that communities need? Well, they need, they need more companies, and the companies need to grow, well, what's, what's the requirement? Well, we have to have people who understand how to grow, and we have to have the right kind of employees being available to be employed. Mm. So because I began to understand all of this stuff, um, we were written up in Business Week. Oh, yes, I'd left NCHEMS by then, and we started our own company called M&H Group. And we were written up in Business Week as one of the few companies in the U.S. that understood how to make cold spots hot. Jazzy. Cold spots meaning Cold ge- geographic regions. Communities that, that were, yeah. like, languishing. Yeah. Um, I'm a little nervous about all this getting out here in Adelaide because 
all of a sudden they'll be asking me to do a bunch of this stuff now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, yeah, I did a lot of policy stuff. Um, And then I was recruited to the Kauffman Foundation when they were just creating the Kauffman Center for Entrepreneurial Leadership because they wanted to know what is it about the eco, uh, the, the macro environment around that enables entrepreneurs to be successful and then what the entrepreneurs themselves need to do to be successful. So I was actually attracted because of that larger macro stuff that yeah, I knew. Okay. But once I got there, it became very clear that it didn't matter how much you did, how much money you had available, how much venture capital you had available, any of that stuff. If you don't have individuals that understand what to do, how to grow, what are the levers, what do they need to do, how they need to change, and so forth, then all of that is just wasted resource. So we began doing then the basic research on what do you need to know, how do you learn it, what do you need to do in terms of packaging it in the most efficient way to make it available, and then how could we, as the center at Kaufman, be the place to go for that information. Yeah, okay. So I had been, you know, reasonably f- famous by then and um, been a White House Fellows finalist and all kinds of things. But I just put my head down and just tried to figure this out, just do the basic research required. What do individuals need to know to grow? Not start, but grow companies. That's quite different than grow than, than the startup phase. So very much a focus of established businesses and how do the... Um, the leaders of those businesses grow those businesses. Is yes. That, is that right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And have you have you observed the conversation around growing businesses change over your time since since you talk about the research there? Is it as the conversation changed, or are the building blocks essentially the same now as what they were way back then? The building blocks are the same. Yeah. Okay. And that's what is interesting. You know, when last December Forbes had the books that technology entrepreneurs are reading, and at the top of the list was our Leading at the Speed of Growth. 18 years ago, we wrote that book. But this is evergreen content that's applicable no matter what industry, and it isn't isn't, uh, at the edge of the trend. It's it's this concrete building blocks of growth. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So it's almost like no matter how much things change, they still remain the same in, in many well, ways. We, some things do. Yeah. Yes. Certainly not technology. Yeah. The major changes in technology, major changes in markets, how you reach customers is different, but you still need customers. They still need to pay. You still need people doing tasks. Mm. We're not totally automated yet. You still need people making good decisions. You need to be able to manage yourself through that whole growth process. Those mm. are yeah. some of the... Uh, yeah. The fundamentals, the yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming through a conversation, you've travelled around the world a lot and observed different cultures. I guess their relationship to different aspects of culture, but in particular entrepreneurship. But do you see like the US versus uh, Europe, London, I guess across Asia, Australia, culturally different like where where the sort of cultural cultural differences and similarities Mm -hmm. when it comes to entrepreneurship certainly so again having lived in australia now for seven years seven years in another week i look at the u.s now and i see the advantages and the disadvantages to the rugged individualism so there is a sort of psyche which is we'll take it on we'll try it We'll fail, we'll figure it out, we'll make make it work. Mm. That's more pronounced 
on each coast than in the Midwest, where there's a lot more peer pressure to don't take too many risks um, and uh, don't fail. So even within the U.S., there's, there's regional differences there. Very definitely, yeah. yes. When, when I taught in China, my concern was that the stuff would be applicable because I see that as much more command and control environment there. So here we're talking about choosing employees, um, providing them with guidance, letting them make their own decisions, delegating, and those sorts of things. So I didn't want to go in and say, this is how you should do it. What I positioned that is, this is how best practice Western companies are operating. And if you want to learn the Western way, then this is good for you to learn. Now, hopefully, some of it would be applicable to them as well. And I think many of them have become more entrepreneurial, less command and control, take risks, and they're changing the uh, environment to support some of those companies that are taking risks and getting venture capital and so forth. But the first time I went to China, they were trying to figure out how they could possibly legalize venture capital. Mm. And so we sat in with members of the party in important positions, talking with them about what's required and being able to put your property, having property, first of all, and then putting your property up as collateral if necessary. Mm. And so some of those basic things, they, if you don't know that, then how, how does this whole entrepreneurship taking risks and, and betting and trying, how, how does that work? But other countries have come along quickly and come up to speed rather quickly on that. What's Europe like? What's Europe's, Europe, even more so than the US, I'm assuming, is quite different regionally and in and, and different countries. But a European attitude towards entrepreneurship? I haven't spent a lot of time in Europe. Yeah. I've spent more time in London, mm. which I'm not sure is representative of Europe anymore. Yeah. Um, I didn't not find a lot of difference anyway. there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I understand that Berlin is one of the most entrepreneurial places on the planet mm-hmm. at the moment. So I, I, I think that yeah, yeah. they are very entrepreneurial. I don't know how to, how to gauge France and yeah. Italy and yeah, so on. Okay. And Australia, what, what, what's your take on Australians, I guess, current attitudes to entrepreneurship, but maybe kind of where that's come from. Are we increasingly understanding it or have we always understood it? Are we, I guess some Australians would say we're, we've got a pioneering spirit and we've always been entrepreneurs or, and others might disagree with that and say we're maybe not as strong in that space as what we maybe sometimes perceive. What's your observation? So from the moment I came and talked with people, I perceived that you were incredibly innovative. The problem was commercializing knowing how to commercialize those innovations, how to think from a business perspective about who's the customer, how to get to market, what's the business model, what would we charge for this, um, what's the positioning, and so on. So those are things that I think are not as strong as in the U.S. for whatever reason. Um, so the idea of coming up with... Well, the idea of coming up with an idea, but um, no Australians can ideas. do that. No shortage of But ideas. just going, how do we commercialize this idea mm-hmm. there can be a almost that bridge is not always there okay. yeah. and it could be that because of the isolation mm. you know the bridge had to be in the old days get on a ship or get on a plane or go somewhere not that was before internet days now it's much easier even so you can have a very innovative whatever kelly engineering very innovative tilling system but it takes a month for it to be manufactured, be on the seas and get to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then, so they found that that 
tyranny of distance was enough of a problem that they're manufacturing yeah. in the U.S. now. So they understood how to commercialize. The question is how to get the last mile to the customer yeah. quickly enough. Yeah. So companies have gotten much better, much smarter, much quicker. Um, I'd like to think that certainly in South Australia, we've now had about 260 companies go through our program with some of the basics of growth in the clinic, and then another 80 or so companies go through the long modules, mm. and that they all say that's made a huge difference to them, and so I'd like to think so. Overall, we've had uh, about 160 companies, I think, go through the intensive modules. And um, it gives people confidence that they have frameworks and tools and ways to think about the problem that now enables them to be more confident about making their decisions. So it's not that they didn't have ideas before. It's not that they... Um, couldn't look around them and see that what other people were doing. They just didn't know if that was the right thing to be doing. So my point with people has been we need more programs, but we also need more people who've been successful to stand up and talk about their yeah, success. Okay. Instead of being, oh, tall poppy syndrome, somebody will cut me down if I, if I tell people I was successful. Well, you know, share what was successful. You could share the stuff that wasn't successful, but learn from each other. Because that's how we get mm-hmm. smarter, by standing on the shoulders of each other. Yeah. I so I think there's less of that here, yeah. or there was. Less there's of that, more of it less, now. In terms of less... Sharing with each other. Yeah, okay. Being role models. Is the geographic, or the um, his, historical geographic isolation of Australia potentially kind of creates that kind of that, that separation, that almost like that psychological separation of going, we're, we're so far away from the rest of the world, so we do think more domestically often in our businesses rather than thinking at a global level. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how the US thinks, but I guess the US is a bigger market, so even if you were thinking domestically, potentially you've got a larger market to, to, um, to conquer, where Australia is, I think, 25 million people, so it's a, it's a niche in itself, so it's sort of that geographic isolation. And I wonder whether programs like yours are a way of even just changing the thinking around it, really, to start going, well, the, the world is 7.4 billion people, not 25 million people, and, mm-hmm. and then, there's the, then the, the cogs start kind of falling in. So it actually doesn't matter where your business is based in the, the world because the market is, 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 is huge, but we've traditionally had a, a very isolated market. Do you find that? Do you sort of want to sort of try to convince some of your um, participants that the world is big and there's mm. a big market out there? Big question. I think they, they realise it's a big world. I think they aren't sure how to start. Yeah, okay. So if you don't have recurring revenue where you are or you don't have increasing revenue and you aren't particularly profitable, then, first of all, you're probably not going to hire more people because mm. you're going to be nervous about Maybe I won't have my revenue next year. I'll have to lay them off. So it's only when you have recurring revenue that's increasing and profitability, beginning to hire people, are you looking at then strategies for expansion? Are you willing to think about going global Mm -hmm. or going offshore? I mean, just going to another state sometimes is as much of a risk Mm -hmm. for some some folks. Um, Different markets, different ways of thinking, different ways of buying. Going global is is quite large, so therefore unless you have that... Yes. Like the um, momentum at a local level funding your growth, it's it's hard to sometimes just 
yeah, to to be investing right. in overseas or wherever it might be. Yeah. Well, the first time I was called down under was by the New Zealand government, who had had now a track record of sending companies to the U.S. only to have them get off a plane and thinking they could sell to somebody, which of course you could in New Zealand, but mm-hmm. you couldn't in the states. Um, realizing that the exchange rate meant their money went half as far and that marketing costs three times as much. Mm-hmm. So they're trying very hard to find a customer and whatever, get situated in the U.S., figure out the the um, channels to market. Meanwhile, the cash burn, cash flow, cash trickle, everything was slowing down in New Zealand. And so they had to abandon that to come back to rescue the company. And that had happened enough times mm. that they began to say, "What? what's going on? Are we not having strong enough companies, or do we not have strategies for them to be able to expand um, successfully? So I started working with them and began to understand, in a program we called 321 Go Global, um, how do you get the stuff set up here, how do you find the appropriate ones over there, and then how do you go global? And so that was our first attempt to do that, and there was no shortage of people sort of wanting to take the risk it's just that they kept failing. And then other people, well, I don't want to be like that, oh, so maybe I better not they keep go. Keep failing by trying. They were trying and then they mm-hmm. failed. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow. Mm-hmm. And losing mm-hmm. a lot of money. Yeah. And sometimes almost, if not losing the company. Yeah, wow, okay. So the same thing is possible here. People don't know how to do it. And if they do it and lose money, that's or their friend loses it, so it's loses better to be safer and, and keep it contained than it is to, to yeah. grow it. And my sense is that New Zealand's got a... a a strong reputation in creativity and innovation and exporting because it is such a small population. So if you don't export in many industries, you're not going to survive. Yeah. And Australia's a little bit bigger, but but still we've we've got maybe for some biz- or many businesses enough of an industry to be able to survive locally. But it's just yeah, it's that it's crossing it's crossing into those new markets that can be quite scary. Is it? Is there a you must see so many different leaders and get a sense of what makes a good leader to be able to conquer um, finding new markets or, or growth or whatever that might be. What, what, what's your, well, what's did, your let me just do the tail yeah, off on this it. one, which is if you find other people who have done it successfully and they can sit down and tell you these are the steps that you need to take, then you have a roadmap, you have a, a game right. plan, then you can do it yourself. And that's why having people who have done it, who are able then to talk to other people and be open in, in sessions, teaching, or in, in presentations, or even over breakfast or dinner, just to say, this is what worked for me. This is how I did it. And getting more of that kind of sharing. Yeah, okay. Nobody's bragging. We're just sharing yeah. as professionals. Okay. So getting that lever uh, snapped in your head. So it's very important to hear those mm-hmm. um, I guess those case studies and mm-hmm. those uh, the stories of businesses that have succeeded because mm-hmm. um, other businesses can take their that's right take their lessons from that and, right. and and create their pathways right and it's not do it this way it's this is how I did it and if any of this is applicable to you by all means um, you know take what makes sense yeah. but just to see somebody I mean. Think about who ran the four-minute mile. Nobody ran the four-minute mile until Roger Bannister. And then three or four people ran it yeah, very okay. quick succession after him. Yeah. So there's okay. something about having having someone who's done it yeah, okay. gives you then the strength or the belief in yourself, perhaps it's confidence, that you can do it. Mm, okay. So that's thing one. Thing two in terms of leadership, um, for sure, being able to bring the right people around you 
being able to get the wrong people off the bus, being able to understand the importance of culture, um, and then figuring out what's the product that is going to give us the most traction in the market. All those are things that are choices. And I end the program with The Wizard of Oz, the last clip of The Wizard of Oz, where they're going like, oh, you're a very bad wizard. You're a very bad man. He said, no, I'm a very bad wizard. I'm a very good man. And then he proceeds to give the lion courage and the, and the scarecrow brains. Mm. And uh, he gives him a doctor of thinkology, piece of paper, right? And the other, he gives him a heart and says, remember, you know, what's important isn't how much you love, but how much you are loved. And if you think about that with your company, it's how much customers love your product. It's how much employees love coming to work for you. It's the having the courage to make the hard decisions about which product to stop, which product to start, where to take it into which markets, what to put on the line versus where to fold them, if you will. Uh, Kenny Rogers, hold them or fold them. Yeah. Um, which people to hire, which people to have those hard conversations with. That's cur- It takes courage. And then it takes brains. You know, And we give you all the tools and all the things that you need, but you've got to take it inside and you've got to then do the stuff that we've taught mm. you how to do. So the leadership isn't... Is an individual, but it's more a, it, it's it's that team. It, it's it's the it's a leadership team, really. Is is that right? It, it, we make teams come. We yeah. do do the clinic with an individual CEO. I call that kind of the come to Jesus. What are the things that you need to be thinking about as the leader of the company? But then, as you come in, for me, growth is a team sport. You can't do this alone. You can't be the genius with a thousand helpers. You definitely need to bring a team along. So what? learn together. So when what, what if you take that pointy the MD or the CEO what like obviously they need in having it's a team effort they obviously need to be able to delegate and and find find a, a like minded team but what what makes that that what else makes that leader particularly strong is it it's like you're saying is it is it courage is it obviously there's an intellect there is it what what makes it what makes a good leader in your your observation so a good leader certainly understands what leaders need to do Um, and that's not having functional skills in coding or selling or product development leadership is about first of all deciding where are we going what is our mission and what are the values that define how we do our work together or work with individual customers um, vendors suppliers and so on so the direction setting the direction that's the first thing and that's the leader's responsibility. If you don't do that, everybody's wandering around in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. you got to do it. Secondly, you have to communicate it. So a whole issue around communication. and Not only where are we going, but what, how far have we come? How are we coming? What do I want you to do? And communicating to people in ways that enable them to understand and get better and then begin to make those decisions themselves. So communicating in ways that teach <clears throat> as well as explain as well as um, exhort, as well as encourage, you know, lots of types of communication. Putting in place that executive team so that you can begin to have parts of your yourself, your ideas, your vision extended throughout the organization. I had a short conversation about what we should have on the website and why, and I said, you guys are on it. I don't need to be here anymore. Yeah. You know exactly what to do. Yeah. So getting to that point. Um then you need to make sure that you've got the culture 
um, for high performance and execution. So a performance-based culture is one where people understand what are the requirements for performance, what am I supposed to do, where is this clarity around who does what, and um, I'm doing it with other people who all take it as seriously as I do. So we have every Wednesday morning, we have our team meeting, and we rapidly go through all the things that all of us are doing. We have a Google spreadsheet, all of us updated. I update the stuff I'm responsible for. So everybody's across what's going on, where things are. We share all kinds of confidential information because we're assuming that they're adults and they will keep it confidential. But everybody knows what's happening yeah, and okay. what's coming and so where the pain points are. So your as a leader just as much as, mm-hmm. as anyone else on the team. Yep. Yeah. yep. So then there's the managing resources. So how I manage the team, the, the people, their time, um, my advisors, I have to manage up because I'm inside a university getting the resources, um, vendors, suppliers, board members, advisors, um, lawyers, accountants, you know, all of those. Those are all resources. They can all open doors. You know, I was just finishing off an email to someone who wants me to chair a table um, that will enable me to bring people in and open up doors for them. So that you're constantly doing that. Mm-hmm. That's how you're building your business. Um, and then there's the whole thing about governance and alignment to make sure that your organization is well governed. So for me, I report to the PVC, so I need to keep her fully informed, which I do uh, informally and then once a month, formal debrief. Pro-vice chancellor, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I were in an, an organization, that would be a board. Yeah. Um, that I had a board before, so it would be the board. Um, and then you're you're discussing issues and looking for their um, their input on some of these difficult decisions that you need to make, and helping you figure your way out of you know difficult, um, sometimes personal issues. I mean, I was surprised to have four people get pregnant in one year in my <laughs> office. <laughs> something about the water, I don't know. Something about that corner or the office, but uh, you know that was like a third of our workforce uh, is turning over, churning, and so we're having to deal with that. So it's good to have some other uh, good heads helping me think through temporary and permanent and what to do about that. Um, so the other part of is, is alignment, to make sure that you know, the plan, what we do every day supports the plan, that the structure we have supports the plan, that we're structured in a way that enables us to um, achieve the vision that I want, that we've got the compensation in the in, in the the um, informal ways of compensating people, not only that good job well done, mm-hmm. but you know, little little things that you do, you know, the $50 gift card when somebody goes above and beyond the call, or taking folks to lunch when we've had it's just an amazing win, yeah, um, okay. little champagne and, yeah. and, uh, and cookies. Uh, when so- somebody's birthday, we celebrate that. When somebody is leaving, we, we celebrate their leaving. Those, those small things are important for keeping everyone aligned and appreciated, acknowledged. And then finally, the learning. Um, I'm fortunate and fortunately in a position I think I'm learning every day. I'm learning from you, from mm-hmm. other CEOs, from my growth experts, from things I read. Even, even writing an uh, article every other week for entrepreneur.com sort of forces me to as uh, in a consistent concise manner get ideas out that Mm -hmm. i think will be important and that helps me clarify thinking so i can do a better job teaching and explaining yeah okay another aspect of a successful business if you mentioned as you've gone through is is customers so 
I guess there's, there's so much in that of, uh, is it, I guess, exporting is one way of finding more customers and what, like what are some of the, I guess, the rules of sort of, I guess, some of the, your, your work rules or observations around a business finding adequate customers or the right customers? I like, guess that's sort of also the point of not, not all customers are equal. So what's, what's your thinking around? I'll say one thing we try to talk about is the ideal customer. So those are ones that give you revenue and profitability, where there's a strategic alignment between you and them, and then the people that you really like to work with. They share your values, mm. and they like at the top of the pyramid. So if you can identify who they are and then really study them and say, how can I find more customers like them, then that would really be optimal in terms of your your customer ideal customer mix. But the whole issue of you know, your your company, what its core competencies are, your competitors, what's going on with them, and the three C's and the four P's, understanding that. Mm-hmm. I'm actually surprised how few companies know those basics in marketing. Your addressable market, yeah. most people don't pay any attention to that. They just do something and go out and find a few people who want it. And, and how do I find more people who want? They don't do any of the market research at all. They don't even use Dr. Google, as I would say. Yeah. It's very simple. It's to hunt up some stuff and find out. Why do you think that is? Like, what, like, I have I no guess, idea. I think we do market research, but, yeah. but what, what, why do you – is it a – I don't know. Is it, um, is it creative kind of stubbornness sometimes of going, well, I couldn't possibly kind of research it or I couldn't possibly Google it? Like, like we've, had, we've had clients before with a – They've got a, a new name, and you go if you Google it. There's there's five of those businesses out there, and you think it's just there. But like, I don't know if it's laziness. I don't know. As a child, I was forced always to look something up in the dictionary. My grandmother played had crossword puzzles, and I, I just would always go to the dictionary encyclopedia. And now I just always go to Google, whatever mm-hmm. it is. I just look it up. Yeah. I don't try to make it up. I just look it up. So there's a line you never assume because it'll make an ass out of you and me. Yeah. <laughs> there's so much of that. That's right. Yeah. So I don't know why people don't do more obvious research on Google, but then basic research for their company. Maybe they think they could just figure it out on their own. There's something pretty exciting about having well, done it yourself. It's a bolt of oh. lightning of coming up. And I think Steve Jobs gets quoted a lot of he didn't, but I'm sure he did. I'm sure he was very... Intuitive, but that's Steve Jobs. He's quite different to most most people. I'm sure he had his own ways of of understanding the market. And was it Henry Ford gets quite, like quoted as not asking consumers what they want. But I think, but but it's a it's an interesting one. I think sometimes it's it, it's a badge of honour sometimes to be an entrepreneur that just kind of wings it and, and makes it all work. But as, as you're saying, there's there's frameworks that are required to to find the right customers and to know how to grow. So I understand <clears throat> because I had done some work with Edison. Edison and um, Henry Ford were friends. Mm. And if it weren't for Thomas Edison, who helped set up the assembly line, Henry Ford had been dead. I mean, dead in the water, mm-hmm. rather. That that would have been a dud in terms of his coming up with that idea. Again, it's an idea. Mm. But the commercialization of the idea was the assembly yeah, line. Okay. Not interesting. So yeah. they talked to each other mm-hmm. and learned mm-hmm. from each other. So that's what... I say we need to do because you'll pick up those ideas those and you can help each other, those conversations. Yeah. And I think they're going on more now than they used to in, in Australia. Conversations but around still, what about sort of finding... Yeah, comparing what, notes. Yeah. Somebody says you should meet with uh, Jason for breakfast and yeah, you don't okay. know me but you're willing to meet with me because that person 
said you should, and so you do. Mm. So that networking is critical to to business growth, finding the right partners and mm-hmm. right connections. Mm-hmm. I was walking back from a meeting today and I was thinking, well, sometimes there can be networking. I think sometimes networking can be confused about being quite wide. I'm going to continue to extend my my width of network, which is which is fine, but sometimes it's best to just to, to find a deeper network as well. And what's your sort of thoughts on finding the right partners that fit? And we've had different groups like yours that we've worked with that some of the entrepreneurs, if we're dealing with entrepreneurs, will say, well, we don't want to go to something just for the sake of getting a free glass of wine or what if we want to actually be able to find people that can help to grow our business. So the sense that you kind of get about what good networking is versus maybe not, not non-productive. Mm. Well, I would go to events where the topic is of interest mm. and then assume or relevant to my business and then assume that the other people are there because of the relevance of the topic and then those would be appropriate people to network with because mm. we all share the same raison d'etre yeah, for, yeah. for being yeah. there. I personally um, don't find it useful for very large events with large numbers of people, or you're just milling around mm-hmm. on a Friday night. I don't personally go for those. But you have, you have things like the organized entrepreneur organization or YPO or tech or mm-hmm. Donnie Wolford's Behind Closed Doors. Those are all networks of people who actually are paying money mm. to be networked to each other. That's right. To talk Those like-minded uh, groups. That that's right. Have. And to talk about what's necessary to mm. grow and develop. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the conversations that's come up in these interviews is the idea of growth as a society and as as, as commercial sectors in particular. There's an obsession with growth, and, and growth's not always good. So, um, some of the problems in businesses is because they're focused on growth. Uh, do you have a sense of when when growth is good and when growth is not good? So, growth um, that's totally out of hand, where a whole bunch of stuff comes in, and you're responding to everything. That's really bad. Um, so any customers? That's not any customers. Yeah. yeah, it's not any customers. It's not any product. It's not um, any any employee who walks in. Yeah. It's not any you know impre- increased twenty headcount is meaningless if they're all the wrong people and it'll be a revolving door and going out the door. So, what you want is to identify a product or service that you have and make it a really good one. And then, if it's really good, then why wouldn't you want the whole world to know about it? Yeah, okay. okay, so then, who is most likely to want and need that? So then you go to the customer markets box. So who are the customers? At what title? What's their profile? What's the persona? Where are they likely to be clustered? How do you find more of them, like that particular customer? Uh, so if they're all playing golf at Saturday afternoon, or they're all hiking, or they're all watching football, or whatever, or or they're all vice presidents for purchasing. Mm -hmm. Those would all be the things that you look that would be the commonalities. And then you began to figure out, then how do I get into the channels to get to those kinds of people? And that's what will enable you to grow, being smart about that. Mm -hmm. So you have to price it properly. You have to also make sure you get your money in the right order. If you Mm -hmm. wait until it's all delivered and then collect then you will fail. So you've got to have some money up front that will yeah. fund the development of whatever it is you're doing, progress payments or something. So you have to price it right. You have to have people working on it who actually produce the quality product. 
You have to have them being proud of their work and caring and not be lazy and, um, and, and realizing that time is money. I have to say I was having lunch watching a couple workers on the tram line in Sydney. And I, I, I counted 20 minutes for them to move 10 stands and in between on, on their, their uh, phones, I suppose it was Facebook or email or whatever, chatting to each other, stepping back, looking at it, and then gradually picking up something and carrying it somewhere else. <laughs> That's not the way to make money. <laughs> That's not the way to grow. Having people like that on your team would... Yeah, you just wouldn't have it. And there's clearly normal. businesses like that. I'm thinking artisan businesses, I don't know, craft beer or a, or a food product that goes, well, I don't want to grow. I just want to, I just want to make a good product and, and sell it. And that could even be a philosophical side. What, I guess sometimes that might be right, but what, what's the message to some of those businesses saying, well, no, I don't want to. I just want to make an artisan business, sell it, sell it in Adelaide or, or wherever. It's a free country. You mm-hmm. can do that. Yeah. I'm not sure that you'll <laughs> get you'll get the product to all the people who would want to have it. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to do with, are you more interested in lifestyle? If you are, hey, that's, that's your choice. That's so be it. So yeah. if you can do it and you can, you can do make it. enough of a lifestyle to survive. Support your family, you support it. yourself. That's what you say, try to say at the beginning of the clinic. The, the point is to find out what is it that you do want. If that is what you want and you don't want to grow, then you're in the wrong place. You shouldn't mm. be in the clinic because you're going to be unhappy for a whole day yeah. where we're pushing you about issues of growth. If you do want to grow, then do you want to grow this to leave it to your kids? Do you want to grow yeah, it okay. and have it as an asset? So those conversations. So, yeah. so growth might not... You have to have, have that earlier question about do you, do you want to grow and, yeah. and what do you want to grow into and yeah. what's that about? Yeah. Where does tech fit? And I, I guess I come back to the like, artisan business where... They're very good at making a, I know, a leather satchel or a, a great food product out of the Barossa or a, or, a, or wine, I guess. Is that, and they're quite happy doing that. But now with the internet, they can access a, a global market. That either on, on that side of where technology's helped us to access, uh, access new markets or other ways in which technology has helped businesses in their growth. Do you have any sort of sense? Oh, gosh. It's <laughs> a huge. Yeah, it's it's huge. And, and getting people to wrap their mind around how you can deliver better service with technology. Um, you can better understand what your customers are wanting by looking at their patterns, yeah. uh, how they're shopping, which products are moving or not, having inventory be controlled and moved around by technology, by robots, you don't need people lifting heavy things. Mm. Robots can do that easily. I think um, making things so much more accessible to customers. So I can order shoes at 11 o'clock on night, at night if I happen mm. to want to go shopping at that particular time. And then two or three days later, they can be in my apartment. Yay. And I don't have to spend all day Saturday shopping for shoes, going mm. from place to place mm. to place. So I often buy clothes on the web, buy books on the web, buy music on the web, do my banking on the web, save so much time, mm-hmm. and I don't need personal services to do all those things. Mm-hmm. I, mean, yeah, I mean, probably even a decade ago, but certainly sort of 20 years ago, but, but even a decade ago, people were fearful of putting their credit card details on, online and, and just the um, insta- insecurity around that. But then I think 
airline started having it, so that was the, the default and you had no other choice. And they said, well, we had different bits of research we'd do and people go, oh, that's not buying online, that's buying air tickets or that's paying for your air tickets. Um, but gradually things have changed. So it becomes it becomes a default, doesn't it, really? And then we've got, I think in the US more than, more than Australia, we've got shopping centres really sort of falling over because they, they can't, they have enough foot traffic to be able to make those businesses viable. Um, what, what do you, what, what's your sense of what will come next in terms of the role that technology will play in, in making some of your, your, your um, participants in your programs what, what, where technology might sort of um, serve better? So certainly in the manufacturing processes, yeah. a lot of that could be systematized and automated, no question there. Second would be artificial intelligence. There are many times it makes sense to have have artificial intelligence mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, people who aren't really focused making some of those decisions. You know, having technology be able to see, you know, if a doctor's making a mistake and pulling him up on that, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd really prefer that. Um, yeah. So... Medically, um, I have two 3D printed knees. If it weren't for technology, I would be, I don't know, probably in a wheelchair by now. They, mm-hmm. My knees were pretty bad. So I'm pretty grateful about that. And, and, you know, in your body, all the things that you have that are now technology. The ability to track where your cattle are because of chips and low flying. Mm. I think agriculture is going to be transformed. I think uh, certainly manufacturing has been transformed. Air travel. How about how about a jetpack, a Martin jetpack? Mm. I'd like to have that all the time when I see all the traffic out there. Just right. I don't know whether the drones are going to be quite as as uh, um, how shall I say uh, ubiquitous as we thought they might be, unless they can figure out the sound. Uh, pe- people are annoyed at having them drone around and buzz around, even if they're dropping off pizza or whatever. Yeah. Um, so there are issues of privacy and so forth when you have things coming at you from places that you weren't expecting. The whole business about credit card and security and breaches of security, I guess we're worried about it, but we're dealing with it. Mm. And just it's like an explosion like, of ideas and opportunities, isn't it, really? A lot of the work we do, there's almost like there's two colliding forces, one that there's never been more opportunities than ever before, but anxiety levels seem to be going up as well because there's so much so much opportunity. You, you must be inundated with people with ideas and they must go I've got this great idea Yana what do you think about this most How of the you... people come they've already built a company yeah. so I'm not on so the that's, front that's end I'm not on the startup in. end yeah, okay. I'm on the scale you don't get end. so many people going I've got this idea what do you think of it okay yeah. I try not to yeah you should talk to George Freeney. He's on <laughs> that part that. of the scale. I'll yeah. do that, yeah. Because he's really looking at ideas. He said there's no shortage of ideas. There's a shortage of people who know what to do with those ideas. Yeah. So, so it's hard on that to say that the idea is not a good idea or, or is a good idea or a bad idea because you just don't know. It's about the execution of that idea really, isn't it? Well, I was talking about that with the CEO today. We were having a coaching call. And he said, oh, it's about execution. I realize it's all about execution. I said, well, there are two parts of that. One is you got to make sure that you are doing the right thing. Is it the right product? Is that the right customer? Is that the right marketing strategy? Secondly, you've got to make sure that you do it right. Mm-hmm. That's the execution part. But first is the decision whether or not that we're doing the thing that we should be doing at all. Mm-hmm. So after that, then you can say, are we... So he, I said, you don't 
put it all on execution because executing bad ideas is not a good idea either for growth. So thinking about both of those and understanding that all ideas are not good just because they're new and just because they've floated through your head, A, they may be unintended consequences are scary. Mm. Secondly, as you say, they may already be done. Check them out Uh on Google. Um, Third, maybe totally impractical. We don't have the the know-how or the skills or the materials or whatever to do that. You know, great to have us all jet out into space and come back again on a vacation, but really, not going to happen for quite a while. And being in, as you're dealing with more established businesses, I guess the question is, does it fit with their vision, really? It's sort of rather than, well, a startup goes, I've got this great idea to create the next Facebook or whatever it might be, but if you're an established business, is it about looking, does this idea help to move us closer to our vision? Is that... Is that more the, the conversation? So if exactly it doesn't, right. if it's a, if it's just a distraction, then don't do it or, or, or think about it differently. And that's exactly right, Jason. So part of the business about being a good CEO is growing up in the sense of saying no to some things. Mm. Great idea, not right for us. That's right. Not right for us at this time. We don't have the ability or the capability or the skills, the knowledge, the whatever, the people, the tools to do it. Interesting idea. I'll grant you that. That's right. So being able to say that instead of, oh, let's let's go check that out. That's, That's right. really interesting. I'm interested in that. Therefore, we'll go spend money and yeah. check it out. And it's more almost having criteria about we're looking for ideas that help solve these things within that organisational culture, for example, that help us to move forward and... Yeah, so rather than being sort of scattergun, it's being really focused. And that's, I think that's a really interesting it is. discussion. And, and you will miss some things, mm. no question, you will. Or someone, others can pick those up, or some of your team members might be able to pick that up and do it themselves. But it, it's, it's about finding that focus right. and to help you drive you forward. And right. one of the, I guess, interesting discussions from, from these interviews has been about the, the role of tech. Does, does, um, does the consumers drive change or does the tech drive change? And often... The idea is there and an organisation might be wanting to do something, but it requires the tech to actually catch up. So the idea might catch, the idea might be there and then the opportunity, the technology catches up to that and then allows you to propel forward. So mm-hmm. almost waiting for a, a bus to come <laughs> to actually help you to get to your, your vision moving forward. Mm-hmm. On that one, does, do, do leaders, how, how much of a leader's vision, and that goes through the culture, needs to be in reality and very pragmatic versus more of a dream and more of a kind of envisaging what the future might be. Do you know what I mean? So that that balancing of the the pragmatic vision versus the the more dream. We talk about the management of innovation and how you have the fuzzy front end where you are doing some of that dreaming, looking at trends, thinking way outside the box. But then you have to be disciplined at sorting through those. And whether you use the waterfall method or the agile method or whatever method, it doesn't matter. You will sort through and understand the customers, how many customers would want that. Do we have the capacity to do that? Um, And so you're throwing out 50% of those ideas at each of those gates, Mm -hmm. stage gates, until you get down to a small whole number or maybe just one or two. And as a, as a leader, you're asking questions. Why is that? Do we know how many? Uh, how long is it going to take? What's going to be required? 
On the other side, once you have found something that you think will give you a competitive advantage, does fit, is a good product or service, then you put it through what we call the speedy backend, where now you try to do as quickly as possible, put it through the pipeline of industrialize it or manufacture it or figure out how to market it or get it to the customers, figure out how it fits with the regular product line, get that out, get the customer service. So you're getting it out to the customers as quickly as possible. And there your idea, you're, you're supposed to be kind of clearing away the underbrush. And there, you know, happiness is not a breakthrough, which it was on this side. Happiness is delivering on time and in budget. Mm-hmm. So very different leadership mm. of the fuzzy front end and the speedy back end. And having people understand how they have to wear different hats or mm-hmm. turn their hat around or be different personas or talk to people, okay, at this part of it, I'm going to do this. In this part of it, I'm going to be this. Yeah, and help people understand the different ways of managing those two very different functions of, of a business. Mm. You must find leaders have visions or organizations, not just leaders, have visions that seem so up in the, cr- in the clouds, like just working towards this this the top of the mountain or whatever it might be when, when do you sort of say this is a this is a peak too high versus um yeah that that, that vision's okay and helping them to, to strive forward versus it maybe being a peak too high and and maybe l- losing the direction of their business does that make sense um the leader can be kind of get really excited about what they want the future to be, but that just might not yeah. be the reality. And um... yeah, uh, clearly there are times when um, boards will step in and remove yeah, leaders okay. who aren't um, adjusting the what would it be the vision to be practical, to be achievable. Yes, right. I I'm sorting through the hundreds and hundreds of people that I've talked to as you're asking me this question. That's why I'm looking mm-hmm. blankly at you as I'm going through my Rolodex. I'm thinking, who have I talked to where it would have been impossible to achieve their vision? Um, I have had a couple of CEOs. Right from the beginning, they envisioned that the company would grow big and go public, that it would have multiples of 15, uh, which is pretty good, mm-hmm. unusual, that um, it would be a national company and that it would happen tomorrow. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's not that we couldn't achieve that vision. It was the time frame. And the second was whether or not they could stay in place through the whole journey. And the answer was no. Yeah, okay. So they had the vision in the beginning, but then we had to put in the systems, the processes, the structure, the people. And as we fo- focused on where we thought the company had the opportunity to win, what was the space it was going into, what were the company's strengths versus the competitors and so on, having new ideas lobbed in all the time was not functional, mm. was dysfunctional. But it needs that level of achievability and, and what do you call it, um, that li- listening to the advice of selected others chosen others like a board or advisors to say well that's great but that's not achievable or or it takes us off focus it takes us off focus it's that's a shiny bright new thing Mm -hmm. so you cannot continue to chase shiny bright new things and have the organization go all over the place and expect your employees to give you their best efforts that's right so that's the tension between 
What if we're focused on the product that isn't the cure for cancer, and now I see the cure for cancer? What do I do? Do I stay focused on this mm. and get the, I don't know, cure for some lesser disease? Or do I switch us all over for the cure mm. for cancer? That's right. And that's part of that leadership decision-making, you know, challenge, courage. How much is it going to take? How long will it be? Do I have the people who are able to do the cure for cancer? Mm. Or am I really better off to go ahead and pursue what we're pursuing and be successful there? Mm. And then maybe sell the company and then go back for the cure that's for cancer right. some other time. Yeah, yeah okay. So what, what, what is that aim we're trying to achieve in the end but that, and trying to find those steps to achieving that and remaining on that same staircase moving forward? And sometimes it's not about the idea. The idea we figured out, now it's executing to get to the yeah, idea. Okay. And in, a, in a one particular case, I can think of where we changed out the CEO and brought in the person who absolutely was focused on the execution People understood what was needed, good communication, uh, a roadmap, um, lots of celebration of having achieved goals, which gave them confidence to achieve more. That's what was the premium needed in the company, not more new ideas. Yeah, okay. Okay. But but certainly when a new leadership team comes into an organisation and they define their strategy moving forward, uh, with the board, that, that's the point where you're defining well, what, what's that vision moving forward and how we're going to achieve that. And in fact, also with your venture capital folks, if you do get VC money, because they come in to support you executing on the plan. Mm. And if you go to them and say, this plan isn't working, I want to do something else. And they go, like, well, we funded this, we didn't mm. fund that. So unless yeah. the, you know, again, unless this is the cure for cancer and they can see that's huge and so much bigger opportunity. They're going to probably want you to continue on the path mm-hmm. that you sold them on. Mm. Mm. That's great. That's good. We started off with you as a young girl and a young, curious girl that loved learning. If we sort of closing off the discussion, what what are your suggestions for for young people moving forward? What would you sort of say, looking back at your life, that if you were talking to someone who was I don't know, maybe not necessarily eight, ten, but sort of maybe people, young, young people? whatever that might be, of, mm. of how do you have a successful life or a successful career? Mm. I guess it's have parents who are who listen, answer questions, and encourage you to look it up and then discuss what you found. So they are investing in your learning, but they're not doing it for you. Mm. They are helping you understand and expand on what little research you did to find that you know how would you use that word let's think of three ways we could use that word my mother would say to me so i could have this amazing vocabulary um in in spite of the fact that i spend so many hours now on my computer i still have books i still love to read so i would encourage people to continue to read yes continue to read so what do you just what do you get out of reading now well if i read fiction um clearly it's my imagination of of imagining what it would be like this is why i love plays better than going to plays because i can imagine them and their costumes and what the set would look like and what how they would be you know talking to each other and which kind of a carriage they would be in and and then i see it it's it's not nearly as wonderful as my imagination (laughs) was and i'm disappointed (laughs) but uh, i i do go to opera i I, opera, ballet, uh, just 
was in Sydney looking at West Side Story uh, last week. So be help your children be well-rounded, music and art and math and reading and experiences. We didn't travel a lot when I was a child. As soon as possible, I started traveling. Went to Chicago, then I went to New York, then I went on the, on the boat over to London, and then all around the UK, and then back, and then to New England, and then all over New England, all over the West Coast, East Coast. I've been to Iran, I've been to Europe, Canada, Asia, India. You know, it's it's that incredible broadening experience. And I went first a couple of trips with my parents, and then I tried to make sure I took my daughter. Mm. It's a special time that we had, and some of those, you know, unique, wonderful, amazing experiences. Um, share them with with others, and um, I'm still in learning mode. Every day, I'm very excited. I can't imagine what today could hold. Mm. It's such life is such a gift. So you learn the unexpected, and mm. it just happens. So. Mm. What, what what next? What are you what are you obviously continuing with the Center for Growth and what, mm-hmm. that's just continuing doing that? Um, Center for Business Growth, yes, the Australian Center for Business Growth. So we'll be um, going into additional states and also hopefully doing some things for the federal government and maybe some things with defense subcontractors, helping them understand how to grow. We've already had overtures from um, people in other countries, so we've always imagined ourselves as global from the start. Uh, I would like to think of us being the edutainment industry. We could have people coming here to courses from all over the world, mm. as well as going going to other places. Um, I continue to enjoy living in Adelaide and travel all the time around like Australia. Adelaide? So, what, yes. what, what, do you, what do you like about Adelaide? Kind and generous people, beautiful environment, clean, um, cultured, artistic, learned. Hmm. Mm, let me think, what else? <laughs> beautiful old buildings, um, appreciation for good life, wonderful wine, great food. Gosh, I don't know. All your life you might save up and hope that eventually you could retire to a place like Adelaide. Well, here I am. I don't have to wait until I retire. That's a million people in Adelaide. So moving forward, I guess the, the role of organisations like yours is, is critical about how to get businesses to grow, to be able to employ more people. And is that right? That, that, that's, I guess, sure. the, the key thing for yes, absolutely. small markets. We had 145 companies that responded to our uh, longitudinal study last year, and they those companies had created over 2,000 jobs. Mm. And hopefully, uh, that's all over Australia, but if we looked at um, just in South Australia, they created something like, uh, I don't know, 1,200 or something like that. Yeah. So I'd like to think those are 1,200 people who get to work here and don't have to leave, mm. go somewhere else. Yeah. And that, that's businesses who um, had a desire to, may, may, have, may have been growing, uh, but putting in some frameworks and some thinking just allowed them to, to grow at a faster rate. Yes, right? some yeah. of them had not been growing, frankly, but yes, we'd like to have the ones with potential. Um, some of the times it's the CEO doesn't know how to think about it and continues to manage as if they were in startup, so that's putting brakes on growth. Sometimes the company was in the wrong market or selling the wrong product, and they had to get out of that and get aligned with what the market really did want. So they fixed that up. Sometimes people have had really bad 
people who have been managing people, very bad managers, employees very unhappy, revolving door, and for whatever reason, the CEO not willing to get rid of the very bad employee. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Oh, what will I do without them? Or will I have to go in and manage without them? Or I can't do without them. They have so much knowledge about the business in their head. We'll crash and burn. Meanwhile, they're you're trading off good employees for this one bad employee. Yeah, so okay. if you make that decision and bite the bullet and have that fierce conversation and make the change and then rebuild the culture, it's amazing what happens. Yeah. So That's excellent. How can people find you? On, you know, on Twitter uh, or LinkedIn? Or, sure. Or Twitter is Janamat, www.centerforbusinessgrowth.com. That will get us there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Yana. Thank you, Jason. All, right. All the best. Thanks. Hey, Jason here to say goodbye. Until next time, please subscribe to Real People via iTunes, your favourite podcast platform. While you are there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday, same time, emails on everything human-centred, customer-focused, entrepreneurialism and thinking different, popular articles by me, the Square Holes team, and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen, Christy Anthony, and Suet Anantula, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list. You can also follow me, Jason Dunstone, on Twitter or your favourite social media. Thank you for listening. Uru.